Thank you for tuning into sermons from Liberty Baptist Church in Newport Beach, California. Our goal is to help you know God more and take the next step in your spiritual journey, no matter where you're at. If you have questions about God or about Liberty, you can connect with us at libertybaptistchurch.org. We pray that the Lord will use this message to be a help and encouragement in your life. For joining us on week number six of our stewardship series we've entitled Money Matters and taking a look at um, biblical stewardship and what the Bible has to say about the things that God has entrusted to our care. Now, the, the theming of the series and the title, obviously it's, it's emphasizing our money, but the reality is our stewardship is much more than just our money. It's, it's our health, it's our relationships, it's our giftings, it's our careers, it's what God has given to us. How are we using it for His glory? And so while, uh, while some of what we're looking at is specifically about the, the material possessions that God has entrusted to our care, it's not what this series is only about, it's also about what are we doing with what God has given to us. And uh, each message, the title of it, has answered a question. And if you have your Bibles, we've started each message in 1 Timothy chapter number 6, and that's where we'll find ourselves again this morning. For those that are watching online, we welcome you, and I'm thankful for, for those that can't make it to church that are able to watch online, but I'm also thankful there's nothing like being together with the body of Christ here, and someone, some folks that were watching online for several months because of chemo treatments and some sickness is Greg and Margaret Park. And I heard you were here two Sundays ago when I was out of town in Virginia, and D.C. area, and we're glad that you're back after many months of not being able to attend, I think really since our anniversary Sunday, maybe only a couple of Sundays since last July, I think, and with those cancer treatments. And to this point, um, the doctors have given him a clean bill of health, and we praise God for that. About how much, if you don't mind me asking, Greg, about how much weight did you lose through all of that? Do you know? About 65, 70 pounds. I saw him this morning. I told Margaret, I said, he's half the man he used to be. And uh, we're so glad that God's giving you strength. And Greg and Margaret are, are charter members of our church. They were here the first Sunday, 45 plus years ago, that Liberty started. And we're thankful for their faithfulness. I guess it's Greg and Margaret Park Sunday. We're clapping for you this morning twice there, but we're so glad you're back and glad that those that are, um, that are, that are not able to be here are able to watch and we welcome you online. We're going to be in 1 Timothy chapter number 6. 1 Timothy is what we call a pastoral epistle. The word epistle just means a letter. Pastoral meaning it was written to a pastor. It's written to Pastor Timothy. And it's written from Paul, the older man in the faith, to Timothy, a younger man in the faith, and he's giving him some instructions. And where we've been reading, Paul tells Timothy to charge those, to teach the people that God has given to him, to teach them some things. And, uh, and so we're on week number six, looking at some different things from this passage. Today we're going to turn to two other passages, so if you have a copy of God's Word, I'd encourage you to keep it open and to follow along. If you don't have a copy, there should be one in the pew rack in front of you. And I haven't said this in, in quite some time, but if you don't own a copy of God's Word, we do have um, Bibles that people can purchase over here, but if you don't own a copy of God's Word, and maybe you're not in a position to purchase one, uh, we do have those pew Bibles, or we have other Bibles. If you see one of our assistant pastors, we'd love to get you 
you a copy of God's Word if, it, if you would promise that you would read it. And if there's any power in my preaching, it is only because of the power of the Word of God. And so I'd encourage you to follow along. If you're following along on a uh, phone or a tablet, I'll be reading from the King James Version of the Bible this morning. We've answered five questions already. Week number one, we answered the question, let's see if you remember, are you what, church? Are you rich? And the answer to that question is? Yes. The Bible says, charge them that are rich in this world. And we are, God has blessed all of us. We are living in the richest country in the world at the probably most wealthy time in history. And we, we are very blessed. The lives that we live are full of luxuries that, that the richest people of even a century or two ago would not have ever imagined to be possible. And we've been blessed. We answered, are you rich? The next week, we answered, who owns that? And we looked at who uh, Paul told Timothy, charged them that they trust not in their riches, but in the living God who giveth us richly all things to enjoy. What we have is not ours, it it is a gift from God. It is God that gives us the power to get wealth. And so we saw that last week, or that second week, that it was God that owns it. And then we saw, are you generous? And we looked at three, uh, a kind of a generosity acid test, and you can find any of these messages on our website, our Facebook page, our podcast if you'd like to catch up. Then we saw Where's Your Home, and it was uh, three weeks ago today was our last message, and it was Are You Satisfied? And we looked at that being satisfied with what God has given to us. And uh, that was two weeks ago I wasn't here, and last week was our Frontline Heroes Sunday, so I didn't preach from this series. I preached a a gospel message, and praise the Lord, I think about a dozen folks raised their hand and made a commitment for salvation last week, a, a decision to trust Christ. But on that, are you satisfied after church? Those of you that were here, I heard a few comments from you, and I heard a few comments from my wife that I threw her under the bus a little bit. Do you remember that? And I told you that that message I had told her that morning, she needed to listen because we need to be content because she's been, I was going to say bugging me, but that would throw her under the bus again. She's been reminding me that, uh, that uh, our 16-year-old minivan needs to be replaced, and she had been asking me for a few weeks if we could re- redo our bedroom. I made it, and she said, Ryan, you made it sound like I wanted you to do this like giant construction project. She literally, she said, all I wanted was a few decorations and like a new bedspread. And uh, she said, you threw me under the bus. I said, no, everybody understood. I, I didn't throw, and then all you told me that I threw her under the bus too. And so my wife told me, she said, I needed to take care of one of those things, either a new minivan or the, the uh, redecoration of the bedroom because of that. And I said, no, you need to learn to be content. You need to be satisfied. And she said, and so then who do you think won that, that argument, folks? I'm the pastor of this church. I'm the head of my home. And so I think we have a picture to show you who won the argument there. And so she got, she got her new redecorated bedroom there and some decorations, some frames, whatever it was. You didn't know what it looked like before, but be impressed there, I guess. We can go back to the title screen. But, but uh, so are you satisfied? And I guess the answer to that question was no, we were not satisfied. So since I preached that, we spent a few hundred dollars on some new things in our master bedroom there in our house. But uh, today... We're going to to look at it from a little different perspective. We're going to go back to our text chapter, and and the question we're going to answer from the Bible this morning is, what can't money buy? It would be probably better and easier to say what money can't buy. That would be a statement, though. It's supposed to be a question. So what can't money buy? We're going to look here in this passage and a couple of other passages, and we're going to see some things that, that we look for in 
things of this earth. We look for in possessions and in pleasures and in positions that we were never intended to find them in those things. We think this next promotion, this next possession, this next position is what's going to give me a few of these things, and we find out that we were never intended to find these things in temporal things of this world. Next week, as we close out this series, it will be what money can buy. We're going to look at some things that money can buy, um, because money is not, as we said before, money is not bad. In fact, we see it in this, in this passage, it's the love of money. Let's look in that verse this morning. Chapter 6, verse number 9. Would you read verse 9 aloud with me? Ready? Begin. But they that will be rich fall into temptation and a snare, and into many foolish and hurtful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. By the way, I want to remind all of us, we are the ones it's talking to here. It doesn't say they that are rich have these negative things, they that will be. It means, and that doesn't mean in the future, that means a will, a craving, a desire, it becomes their purpose. Do you know there are people living in poverty that their entire purpose is, I'm going to get rich? This isn't a matter of your income level. This is a matter of the heart. I must get more stuff. And he says, those that live for more, he says here, he says they, they fall into temptations, a snare traps into many lusts, hurt, foolish and hurtful lusts, which drown men. Those that their whole purpose for living is I am going to find how, how to get more. I covet more. I need more. I desire more. Read verse number 10 aloud with me, if you will, please. Ready? Begin. For the love of money is the root of all evil, which while some coveted after, they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Again, sometimes people quote this the wrong way, money is the root of all evil. No, that's not true. The love of money, and do you see the word, the verb that it uses later in that verse? Which while some have coveted after. It's that will, that desire, that this is my purpose. I've said it before. Money is a wonderful tool to help you accomplish your purpose for living. Money is a terrible purpose for living. Money is a wonderful tool to help you accomplish your purpose for living. Money is a terrible purpose for living. If the reason you get up is just to get more stuff, he says here, the love of money is the root of all evil. And when, we, when those that have coveted after it, they have erred from the faith, pierced themselves through with many sorrows. And this morning, the idea, they thought it would bring them fulfillment. They thought it would bring them satisfaction, but they were sorely disappointed. Why? Because there are some things money can't buy. And we're going to look at that this morning. It has been said, you've heard it said before, money can't buy happiness. How many of you heard that said before, right? I saw somebody say money can't buy happiness, but it can buy ice cream, and that's sort of the same thing. <laughs> so there's some truth to that, right? I heard somebody else say money can't buy happiness, but it's more comfortable to cry in a BMW than on a bicycle. And uh, someone else said whoever said money can't buy happiness didn't know where to go shopping. And I'm not sure if that's right or not. And the last one, money can't buy happiness. Poverty sure ain't going to help either. And so, so there is some, there's some truth to some of these things. But this idea of what can't money buy, there are definitely some great benefits to money. It can make life easier in many ways. It can also complicate life. It can be used in many wonderful ways. It can be a real blessing to you, to your loved ones, to others. I, I was meeting with our seniors. I teach a class on Fridays with our seniors in our high school called Life Skills, and we talked through some things, and we were talking on some financial principles for their future. 
And I asked them, I said, is a brick, is a brick good or evil? And they said, neither. I said, a brick, a brick can be used. You can take a brick. Steve, you're a police officer. You've probably been called to calls like this where somebody takes a brick and throws it into a house or a window or a, a car or something like that, smashes a window and robs somebody of their things. They can use a brick or you can take a brick and you can build a hospital that will help people or a church or a school or a house. The brick has no inherent morality. It's all about whose hand it's in and how they choose to use it. You know, the same is true about money. It has no inherent morality. It's all about whose hand it's in and how they choose to use it. Money can be used to buy clothes to wear, food to eat, a house to live in, a car to drive, Reese's peanut butter eggs, whatever it might be that, that helps you. Money can be a blessing. It can bring some great blessings. But there are a lot of things that money can't buy according to Scripture. By way of introduction, I want to read from a study that was done in 2012, a man by the name of Robert Kenny a de developmental psychologist and senior advisor at the Center on Wealth and Philanthropy at Boston College, led a research project on the aspirations, dilemmas, and personal philosophies of people worth $25 million or more. Kenny and his colleagues surveyed approximately 165 households via an anonymous online survey and were surprised to find that while money eased many aspects of these people's lives, it made other aspects more difficult. He said this in his survey in 2012. He said, we decided to ask three major questions. First, we asked them, what is the greatest aspiration for your life? As far as we can tell, no one has ever asked this population of high earners that question, yet there are assumptions made about this all the time. The second major question was, what's your greatest aspiration for your children? Our third question was, what's your greatest aspiration for the world? After each of the major questions, we then asked them, how does your money help you with your greatest aspirations, and how does your money get in the way? People in this group consistently said that their greatest aspiration in life was to be a good parent. Isn't that interesting? Not exactly the stereotype some might expect. When asked whether their money helps with that, they answered with all the obvious, good schools, travel, security, varied experiences. But when asked how their money gets in the way, that was a payload, he said. We received response after response on how money is not always helpful. They mentioned very specific concerns, such as the way their children will be treated by others and stereotyped as trust fund babies, or, or, and they wondered if their children would know if people really loved them or their money whether they'd know if their achievements were because of their own skills, knowledge, and talent, or because they have a lot of money. Some were concerned about motivation. They worried that if their children have, have enough money and don't have to worry about covering the mortgage, what will motivate them? How will they lead meaningful lives? This is where the money might get in the way and make things confusing, not necessarily better, they said. Very few, this is interesting, very few of these that would be in what we would call the top 1% probably in America, very few said they hoped their children made a lot of money. And a few said they were going to give all the money to charity and let their kids fend for themselves. They were, however, really interested in helping their children figure out how they could live a meaningful life. What might psychologists find most interesting about this work, this study? A net worth of $25 million, Kenny said, or more, brings temporal freedom, spatial freedom, and sometimes psychological freedom, but it's not always easy. Eventually, temporal freedom, the freedom to do anything you want, raises dilemmas about what the best way to use all your time might be. 
There's also spatial freedom. You get to build anything you want, a house, a business, a new nonprofit. And people often get lost or befuddled with all of their options, he said. The takeaway from this, all of this, here's what he said, is that there seemed to be a trend that said, you can't buy your way out of the human condition. For example, one survey participant told me that he'd sold his business, made a lot of money off that, and lived high for a while. He said, you know, Bob, you can just buy so much stuff, and when you get to the point where you can just buy so much stuff, now what are you going to do? The research shows the rest of the world who often think that if they just made one more bonus or sold one more item or got one more promotion, then their world and their family's world would be so much better. This research shows that that isn't necessarily true. There's another whole level of concerns that parents are going to have about their kids. And that one, he said, is this feeling of isolation, and he goes on. This, this research, I think, is interesting because it's a reminder that no matter what, and it doesn't matter where you're at on the scale of income today, all of us by nature think a little more will make my life a little better and a little easier. And sometimes there's some truth to that. But the reality is it won't ever solve all of our problems. It won't ever bring fulfillment that it was never intended to bring. Jim Carrey, the, the actor, famously said, I think everybody should get rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed of so they can see it's not the answer. And I, want us to, I want us to be reminded this morning of a few things that we sometimes, no matter what we make or don't make, we sometimes look for in temporal things that were never intended to bring those, th these characteristics or these things to us. What can't money buy? I'm going to scare you right now. We're going to look at seven things that we often think stuff will give us, and I promise it won't be that long. If we understand that money and material possessions won't bring us these seven things, we won't waste years of our lives trying to find it in stuff. That's what Paul's telling Timothy here. Charge them that are rich in this world. Tell them that they shouldn't be coveting after this, thinking that it's going to bring them these things when they'll never find it in this stuff. Number one, the first thing that money can't buy, we see it in verse number 10, the first thing is this, joy. Money can't buy joy. Verse number 10, what does he say at the, the end? They have pierced themselves through with many sorrows. When we live for money, we pierce ourselves through with many sorrows. Happiness is dependent upon external circumstances. Money can buy some temporal pleasure. It can buy some happiness. It can buy uh, a nice vacation. It can buy some things that make our lives a little easier. It can buy some short-term happiness. Money can never give us deep-seated joy that withstands all of the, the trials of life. Well, where did Paul, in Philippians chapter number 4, verse number 4, what did he write? Paul wrote and said what? Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. Where did he write that from, church? He wrote that from where? Prison. What is he saying? I, he said, I've learned to be abased. I've learned to, be a, uh, to abound. I've learned to have much. I've learned to have little. I've learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. What is Paul teaching us? I can have joy no matter my circumstances. I can have joy when I'm sitting at the resort overlooking the ocean and, and enjoying the swimming pool and going snorkeling. And I can have joy, Paul said, in the basement of a dark, dungy, damp prison for preaching the gospel of Christ. My joy is not dependent upon my circumstances. Money can't buy joy. Only Christ can give that. It's why Paul could write that from a prison cell number two. Told you it wouldn't be that long. Aren't you encouraged now? We're already on point number two. What can't money buy? Money can't buy 
contentment. Would you turn with me to Ecclesiastes chapter number five? We're going to look at our next three points from this passage. In the Old Testament, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes chapter number five. Again, understanding who is writing this. The writer of Ecclesiastes is a man by the name of Solomon. Solomon was the wealthiest king on on planet earth at that time. He he had more stuff than anybody in the book of Ecclesiastes is his story about where he went and tried to find fulfillment and joy and contentment in what he calls stuff under the sun, basically earthly stuff. He says, you'll see that phrase in Ecclesiastes a bunch of times, under the sun, under the sun, under the sun. And he said, I went and tried to find my contentment, and he had unlimited resources. You and I, there's a song we want to listen to, we download it to our phone, we pay a dollar or whatever, maybe we have a streaming service, we can listen to it. Solomon wanted to listen to a song, he brought in the group that played it to play for him. He had all the food, he had all the stuff, he had, he, he said, here's what he said, I withheld not anything that I desired for myself. I tried it all, thinking I could find fulfillment and satisfaction and contentment in stuff under the sun. Look what he says in, in Ecclesiastes chapter number five, Solomon, this case study of someone trying to buy happiness with money only to find that journey fruitless and fleeting. Would you read Ecclesiastes 5, verse number 10 aloud? Ecclesiastes 5, verse number 10. Ready? Begin. He that loveth silver shall not be satisfied with silver, nor he that loveth abundance with increase. This is also empty. He said, this is emptiness, worthless, valueless, vanity. Here's what he said. He that loveth silver shall not be satisfied with silver. There's never enough if that's what you're going for. There's always more to get. There's always somebody that has more than you. There's always a bigger house to build and a bigger, a nicer car to drive and a better vacation to go on and a whatever it might. There's always more. If what you're trying to find, he that loveth abundance, will not be satisfied with increase. It will never be enough. This is a good reminder. Again, we sometimes think, well, yeah, pastor, preach it at those uber-wealthy people. No, pastor, preach it to pastor and his wife. And preach it to you and to college student and to teenager and to everybody. This is not about net worth. This is about mentality and mindset towards stuff. If I just could have that career, go to that college, graduate from there, try that, go on this, then I'll be content. And he said, when you're finding your contentment in stuff, you'll never have enough stuff to make you content. Number three, what does he say in verse number 11? What money can't buy and what can't money buy? Number one, joy. Number two, contentment. Number three, peace. Look at verse number 11. Notice what he says. When goods increase... They are increased that eat them, and what good is there to the owners thereof, saving the beholding of them with their eyes? What does he say? The more you have, the more, there, the more people there are that want some part of what you have. You know, the, the more you earn, the more people find out who you are, all of a sudden they shoot you texts and emails and knock on your door. Hey, would you, would you support this cause? And would you be a part of this? And could you help us with that? And why don't you give to this? And could you make a difference here? And, and the more you have, he says, when goods are increased, they are increased that eat them. What is he saying? The more you have, the more sometimes troubles you have. And he says, and then what, what do they really do for you? 
He said, what, what is there other than just the beholding? He says it here in verse 11. He said, what good is it to the owners thereof, saving the beholding of them with their eyes? Really, what you can do when you have way more than you need is you can just look and say, wow, I have a lot more than I need. And what does it do? I remember my wife and I, they were godly Christians, uh, friends of ours in Northern California. He was a venture capitalist, a very successful, retired in his 40s. They lived on a golf course, a multi-million dollar mansion. Their, their, their hallways were like 15, 20 feet wide. Beautiful home they built from scratch. And I remember we went to their home. They had us over for a meal. We went to their home, and, and they had, a, they had a, a man cave and a game room and a theater and a pool with a pool house and all of these things, one of the more, more beautiful homes I've ever been in in my life. And we went, and they showed us. They said, oh, let's go, and let's go sit down. And we went to their living room. Their living room was the size of your living room and my living room. It was a room right off of the garage. It had two leather couches, no artwork on the wall, one TV, because they had two dogs and they didn't really want the dogs in the house shedding all over the house. And they said, this is where we pretty much spend every night with our family. We sit in this room. We, we have, we, there was just a husband, wife, and, a, and they had one daughter. At that time, she was probably seven or eight years old. And this, we get TV trays and we eat dinners here together. And, and then we, if we watch a movie, we play games together. This is where we spend 90% of our time together. And I was like, what? This was, I would be all over. I'd be in the game room and watching the theater and going here and going there. But for, for them, and I'm not saying everybody's this way, for them, the rest of the stuff was good for hosting. It was good for having events or parties, but they didn't use it on, the, on a daily basis. It was good for the beholding of it with their eyes. You know what it was? It was just more stuff to clean more things to break down, more things to go wrong. In your life and in mine, the more we have, the more people will want what we have. When goods increase, they are increased that eat them. Look at verse number 13. Verse number 13, he says, there is a sore evil which I have seen under the sun. I've watched this happen. Namely, riches kept for the owners thereof to their hurt. What does he say here? When we mishandle our money and we don't use it the way God intended, it brings hurt, not peace. Money can't buy peace. Number four, what can't money buy? A good night's rest. Look at verse number 12. Would you read it aloud with me? Ecclesiastes 5. We're already on point four, and all God's people said? All right, verse number 12. This, would you read it aloud? Let's read it together. Ready? Begin. The sleep of a laboring man is sweet, whether he eat little or much, but the abundance of the rich will not suffer him to sleep. What is Solomon, the man that has more than anybody, saying? There's a fulfillment that comes from finding your purpose in life, giving your best to it, and going home to your family. Living a good, clean, meaningful life of honesty and hard work. The sleep of a laboring man is sweet, whether he eat little or much, whether he's high income earner or low, it doesn't really matter. If he's found his purpose and he's living a good, clean life, there is a peace, a good night's rest that comes. Look, look what he says, but the abundance of the rich will not suffer him to sleep. Another, I remember another story when I was a young married couple, young married husband, my wife and I were a young married couple, friend of ours, a single lady, a sweet godly Christian that's given millions of dollars to the work of God. God has blessed her abundantly. She was at one time the number one realtor for one of the largest real, real estate firms in the world. And she was the top grossing realtor in, in the Bay Area. And very good friends of our family did, did wonderful things for us, was a great blessing to my, my, my father-in-law, who's a pastor there. She built buildings to be used for God's glory. But I remember she had purchased a property 
on a hill overlooking basically all of Milpitas there in San Jose area. And she brought us through. She wanted us to come see the construction. We were walking through this construction. It had an underground garage with car elevators that you could do all of these things and, and an indoor pool and all of this stuff. It was a beautiful, beautiful home she was building. And we got to one home. It was right near her master bedroom. And we got to home and, I, and we walked in. There was the walk-in closet and the bedroom and all of these things. And there was this room. And I said, and I said her name. I said, what, what's this room? She said, and it's the first time I'd ever heard of this. I'd never heard of this in a home before. She said, that's a panic room. I said, what's a panic room? She said, well, that's if somebody breaks into my house, I can run into there, push a button, and I get closed in, and they can't hurt me. And you know, the thought hit me. My wife and I struggling to figure out how to pay for groceries that week. Thought hit me. I've never gone to bed at night worried who's going to come try to take my stuff. Because whoever they are, they already have more stuff than I do. So they're not, they're not coming to get mine. I've never gone to bed at night worried, thinking about, I need a panic room in my house. And I'm not criticizing her for having that. It was a reminder to me that when God has blessed you materially, you always have to be thinking, what angle is somebody trying to get at me? What are they trying to take of my hard-earned work? What's going on there? And, and what security systems? I'm a target for those. That's what he says here. He says, Solomon says, the abundance of the rich will not suffer him to sleep. There are some, there are some fears and some anxiety, some things that, that, that the, the wealthy might have to be worried about that we've never worried about. And the reality is, no matter where you're at on the income scale, the more that you have, the more you have to worry about. Can I tell you, in just the last month in our home, we have had problems with our hot water heater. We have cleaned out closets to get rid of bags of clothes we weren't using. We had to have the pool pump fixed, and then had to have this last week, the pool filter replaced. My wife told me last night that, that we have a dishwasher tray that's broken, and I need to fix that. It needs to be replaced. We re recharged the video doorbell. We had to have the dryer vents professionally and ducts cleaned this last month. I have a car that I just got an uh, alert that ha needs an oil change. Another car with a tire pressure light on. A minivan with all of the dashboard lights on. And as you know, in the last month, we had a master bedroom that needed to be redecorated. What am I saying? That's just one month. In addition to all of our day-to-day -day things, just one month, all of these, the more stuff you have, the more responsibility there is. That's what he says here. And he says, the sleep of a laboring man, when you find your purpose and you give your life to it, there's a peace, a good night's rest that comes. Look at verse number 14. What does he say? But those riches perish by evil travail and he begetteth a son, and there is nothing in his hand. And as he came forth of his mother's womb, naked shall he return to go as he came, and shall take nothing of his labor which he may carry away in his hand. And this also is a sore evil, Solomon says, that in all points as he came, so shall he go. And what profit, look at this phrase in verse 16, the end of it, what profit hath he that hath labored for the wind? What is the wind? It's that thing you can never latch on to. You see that in Scripture when it talks about wind sometimes, especially in Ecclesiastes. He's talking about this thing that you know it's there, and, but you can't, you can't capture it. You can't grab it. There's no tangible. He said, what are we really living for? Are we giving our entire lives laboring for the wind? That thing that's here quickly and then it's gone, and it doesn't really matter. He says, you're, you came in naked into the world, and you're going to go out the same way you came, not taking anything with you. And he said, so why are you living for so much down here? That, that doesn't mean, again, you can't, it means what are we doing with what God's given us, not just for earthly pleasure, but for eternal impact, for eternal value. What is the point of living for stuff? Number five, I want you to turn with me two books over to Psalm chapter number 49. 
Psalm 49, if you will, and I'll give you number five. Psalm number 49. By the way, who is the psalmist? Psalm 49. The psalmist of most of these psalms is who? King David. Who is David's son? Solomon, the one that wrote Ecclesiastes. King David knew a little bit about having a lot of stuff. What can't money buy? Look at Psalm 49, verses 1 through 9. Follow along, if you will, please. Hear this, all ye people. Give ear, all ye inhabitants of the world, both low and high, rich and poor, together. My mouth shall speak of wisdom, and the meditation of my heart shall be of understanding. I will incline mine ear to a parable. I will open my dark saying upon the harp. I want to teach you something with this song, he says. Wherefore should I fear in the days of evil when the iniquity of my heels shall compass me about? They that trust in their wealth and boast themselves in the multitude of their riches, look at this, none of them can by any means redeem his brother nor give to God a ransom for him. For the redemption of their soul is precious and it ceaseth forever that he should still live forever and not see corruption. What did David say? The psalmist say, he said, money can't buy salvation. The most important gift, the most important possession, if you will, that anyone can have cannot be purchased. It's a gift of God, not of works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. He said, we can't, it's not of works. It's nothing we can buy. And the psalmist here says, both rich and poor, low and high, understand this. Nobody can pay to buy somebody else's salvation. There was, centuries ago, a denomination that had the doctrine of indulgences, where when you had a, a, a relative that died, that passed away, based on how much they sinned, you could come down and they would give you an amount that you could pay to try to get them out of purgatory and into heaven. That's a great fundraising plan for a church. It's terrible doctrine. You can't buy anybody's way into heaven, yourself or anybody else's. And, and he says here that, that it's only a gift. Your, the, the, by the way, do you remember the rich young ruler came to Christ and said, how can I get to heaven? And he said, go sell everything you had. And what happened? He went away sad. For him, his stuff, not only was his stuff not getting him into heaven, his stuff was actually keeping him from a relationship with Christ. His stuff had such a hold in his heart, it was keeping him from coming to me, to, to Christ, uh, Jesus said. Number six, what can't money buy? The power of God. In Acts 8, there's an amazing story of the conversion of Simon the sorcerer. Some people question if it was an authentic um, conversion decision. But this man, Simon, was a sorcerer that before his professed conversion, he could do amazing supernatural spells and tricks. And I want you to see what happened in Acts 8. The Bible says, but there was a certain man called Simon, which before time in the same city used sorcery and bewitched the people of Samaria, giving out that himself was some great one, to whom they all gave heed, from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the great power of God. And to him they had regard, because that of long time he had bewitched them with sorceries. But when, notice it says, but, but when they believed Philip preaching the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, once they found true salvation and were baptized, both men and women, 
Then Simon himself believed also. And when he was baptized, he continued with Philip and wondered, beholding the miracles and signs which were done by the disciples of Christ. Now when the apostles which were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent unto them Peter and John, who when they were come down, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Ghost. For as yet... He was fallen upon none of them, only they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then laid they their hands on them, and they received the Holy Ghost. And when Simon saw that through laying on of the apostles' hands, the Holy Ghost was given, look what he, what he did. He offered them money, saying, give me also this power, that on whomsoever I lay hands, he may receive the Holy Ghost. I believe Simon, who had been greatly respected for, he was a, 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 somebody involved in the dark arts and, and, and doing sorcery and other tricks. I believe he saw a great, I personally think he saw a great business venture here. I can go around, and if I can lay hands on people and they get the Holy Ghost, one, I can do God's work, and I could probably make a whole lot of money off of that. Whatever his motives were, that might not have been his motive, but whatever his motives were, it was, man, this is awesome. How much money does it take for me to get that magic spell from Jesus that I can put my hands on people? Look what it says. But Peter said unto him, thy money perish with thee, because thou hast thought that the gift of God may be purchased with money. Thou hast neither part nor lot in this matter, for thy heart is not right in the sight of God. I think I can buy my way into God's good graces or buy my way into some church hierarchy or buy my way into some position of prestige. He said, that's not how it works with God. It's not about your position or your possessions. It's not about what you have or don't have. It's about a relationship with him. And money, a good reminder, money cannot buy the power of God in our lives. Lastly, the last thing we see from Solomon writing to his son in Proverbs many times, money can't buy family harmony. CNBC said that being rich actually increases your odds of divorce and that divorce rates go up during economic growth periods and go down during economic downturns. Isn't that interesting? And Solomon had a lot to teach his son. This man that lived in some of those beautiful places, palaces you can imagine, had, more, had the luxuries, that, all the luxuries you could imagine. He had some interesting things to tell his son in the book of Proverbs. He said in Proverbs 15, 16, Son, better is a dinner of herbs where love is than a stalled ox and hatred therewith. Son, it'd be better to focus on your family harmony than all your stuff. Son, this is the way I've said it to my kids, who you are is more important than what you have. He said to his son in Proverbs chapter number 17, verse number one, better is a dry morsel and quietness therewith than a house full of sacrifices with strife. A dry morsel, just a little something to eat, a little dried out crouton piece of bread, than a house full of sacrifices, filet mignon and the big spread, but there's animosity and there's tension and there's anger and there's lying and there's dishonesty. He said, son, Focus on what matters most, your relationship here and your relationship with those you love before you focus on your relationship with stuff. He said in Proverbs chapter number 21, verse number 19, it is better to dwell in the wilderness than with a contentious and an angry woman. That might be the verse where it came from. If mama ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. Somebody said, I wish husband, uh, he said, uh, uh, I wish, uh, oh, oh, happy wife, what does it go? Happy wife, what is it, how's the saying go? Happy wife, what? Happy life. Someone said, I wish husband rhymed with life. And uh, you'll get that a little later, or maybe not. 
Proverbs 21, verse number nine, the Bible says, Solomon's told his son, it is better to dwell in the corner of a housetop than with a brawling woman in a wide house. What is he saying? Your stuff, <laughs> your stuff, your stuff cannot buy you family harmony. The stuff that matters most in this life isn't stuff we can hold in our hands. And here's the interesting thing. We all can be deceived with our human nature, with the American dream, with the society in which we live. We can all be deceived to think that job, that possession, that amount in my bank account, that house, that vehicle, that vacation, that business success, that is what's going to bring me joy. That's what's finally going to bring me contentment. That's what's finally going to bring me in my life a good night's rest and what's going to bring me peace and what's going to bring me salvation and what's going to bring me power of God and what's going to bring me family harmony. And, and what does he say? We see here Solomon and David and Paul, they say that stuff can't go. I've given you this morning seven things that money can't buy. I could go on. Money can't buy a good name, a good reputation. Money can't buy real security. Money can't buy health. It can get you access to really good doctors. But by the way, those doctors, it's God that brings healing. And yes, God can use doctors to help, but money can't, there have been many. Uh, in fact, every wealthy person that's ever lived up until this generation, until this, those that are alive right now have passed away. Money can't buy any of those things. Money, it is God that can do those things. And I could go on and on. If that's true, why are we spending so much of our time our energy, our focus on the temporal that will never satisfy when God can give us every one of those things and more. Joy. His, Jesus is our joy. Contentment, peace, a good night's rest, salvation, the power of God, family harmony. Where do all of those things come from? They come from that solid rock that the choir sang about, that firm foundation. They come from living uh, in accordance to the principles of God's word. God has the answer for all those things, yet here's what we do. And I say you, we, here's what we do. We think that next thing is what's going to give me that. That next success, that next venture, that next relationship. And he says, those things are not wrong. Use them for my glory but stop looking for stuff that those things can never give in that stuff. Stop chasing after the wind and start chasing what matters. In 1928, a group of the world's most successful financiers met at the Edgewater Beach Hotel in Chicago. The following were present. The president of the largest utility company, the greatest wheat speculator on, on earth at that time, the president of the New York Stock Exchange, a member of the president's cabinet, the greatest bear in Wall Street, the president of the Bank of International Settlements, the head of the world's greatest monopoly. Collectively, in this hotel in Chicago, these tycoons controlled more wealth than there was at the time in the U.S. Treasury. And for years, newspapers and magazines had been printing their success stories and urging the youth of the nation to follow their examples. 25 years later, this is what had happened to these men. The president of the largest independent steel company, Charles Schwab, lived on borrowed money for the last five years of his life and died broke. The greatest wheat speculator, Arthur Cutton, died abroad insolvent. 
The president of the New York Stock Exchange, Richard Whitney, served a term in Sing Sing Prison. The member of the president's cabinet, Albert Fall, was pardoned from prison so he could die at home. The greatest bear in Wall Street, Jesse Livermore, committed suicide. The president of the Bank of International Settlements, Leon Frazier, committed suicide. The head of the world's greatest monopoly, uh, Ivar Druger, committed suicide. All of these men had learned how to make money, but not one of them had learned how to live. And we might not be the the, the greatest bear on Wall Street, and we might not be the greatest tycoon to ever live, but we can fall into the same trap. We can learn how to get stuff, but never truly learn how to live. And Paul told Timothy, charge them that are rich in this world, that they don't trust in that. They don't look for their fulfillment there. Flee from those things and follow after righteousness. We will not put, he said, Paul told Timothy, tell them, we will not put our our trust in riches, but in him who richly provides. Can I say this, my last statement here, the last slide at least? If you want to feel rich, count all the things you have that money can't buy. You have salvation, you're eternally rich. You have peace, and if you don't have it, let's, let's talk, let's work. God wants you to find it. Contentment, family harmony a good night's rest, all of those things that money can't buy. If God has blessed you and if you're seeking to live according to his principles, you are blessed beyond measure. Joy, contentment, peace, salvation, the power of God, a good night's rest, family harmony, those are the true riches of this life. And those are found in the life wholly given to God. A life lived for self has a lot of struggles. A life lived for God finds a lot of things that money can never buy. Next week, we'll close the series out with that message entitled, What Can Money Buy? Because money can buy some really important things in our lives. And we'll look at that next Sunday. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Thank you for listening to Messages from Liberty. Tune in next week for more Bible teaching or subscribe on iTunes to stay up to date with our current series.